Good morning. Would you take God's word and turn to Jonah chapter 4. For those that are visiting with us this morning, we want to welcome you. And we've been in a series in the book of Jonah. And this morning is the last of that series. And we're going to deal with the three questions that God asked Jonah in that text. Before we do that, why don't we look to God in prayer? Gracious Father, we appreciate that we can be here and we have the privilege of worshiping in spirit and truth. May your spirit direct our minds and our hearts. May you teach us what we need to hear and learn. And help us, Lord, what it means really to engage being the church in all aspects of our life. No matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, We do this, Lord, as we sang this morning, for your honor, for your glory, for your praise. And everyone said, amen. If you haven't noticed in our culture, we are good at creating alternative realities. That's called rewriting the past. Creating an impression that isn't necessarily true. If you follow the news this past week, it came out that Brian Williams who wrote something 13 years ago about his helicopter being under RPG and small arms fire during the Iraq war in 2003, was at a hockey game with a veteran. And, you know, 13 years ago, they didn't have Twitter. And so when the story was told on the hockey screen, they honored this veteran, Twitter lit up. And they found out the details that Brian Williams gave in 2003 were not necessarily accurate. And so he had apologized. But even in the apology, they found out he was still creating a story that was not true. Now think about the internet for a moment. And think about alternative realities. I think it requires us more than ever to think well. And by thinking well, I'm talking about thinking and bringing a biblical worldview into our process. So much of our faith in the past, people have told us what to believe, not to, how to think biblically. Here's an illustration. Many of you probably know who Billy Graham is, right? Okay? One of the key evangelists of the past century and present. Well, this week I Googled his name and I put in Billy Graham is a universalist and I came up with tons of material that claim that Billy Graham really is not an evangelical, Bible-believing preacher, but really he's a universalist. A universalist is someone who believes that everyone is going to heaven. And they used his quotes to prove their points. The one I actually put my notes, and I'm not going to take the time to read, came out of an interview led by John Meekham of Newsweek magazine, August 14th, year 2006. And because of what he said in there, the person took the phrase out of context and says, see, Billy Graham himself is saying he's a universalist. And that's not what Billy Graham said. I think sometimes we forget that Satan quoted scripture to Jesus. Said, you know, God's word says. And Jesus says, don't go take that out of context and make it say something it wasn't meant to say. So I think it's absolutely critical that we learn how to think 
well. Not what to think, that comes later, but how to process. And one of those ways to think well is learning to ask the right questions. Now, one of the skills Jesus displayed was this whole art of question. I encourage you to read the gospel sometimes and just highlight all the questions that Jesus asked. He had an incredible art of asking the right question at the right time. And of course, you know there's different kind of questions. There's what they call open and closed questions. Open has a multitude of answers to it. Closed, they want a yes or no. Reminds me of school, and I did not like those kind of questions because they usually guess the wrong one. There's leading questions that people lead you down a path where they want you to go. And there's accusatory questions that people actually accuse you by asking a question. They really don't want an answer. They just want to make the accusation. Then there's questions of the heart. Questions that penetrate and deal with core issues at hand. And so we have stories in the Gospels that kind of like Jonah, there's a storm in the sea. The sailors are afraid. They were the disciples and Jesus is asleep. And they wake him up. And he asks this question. Why are you afraid? What's going on in your heart that doesn't trust me, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Messiah you claim to believe in. Why don't you think I'll be taking care of you? Peter walks out in the water briefly. I mean, give him credit. He got out of the boat. The rest stayed in the boat, okay? We pick on Peter sometimes, but he actually got out of the boat. But he starts sinking. And Jesus says, why did you doubt? You know, you had the right steps the first time. He feeds the 4,000, and the disciples are like, and this is different than the five. He fed 5,000, then he feeds four again. And they still come to him and say, well, you know, we can't feed everybody. Well, it's almost like, did you remember what I just did over here? And so Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? One time he asked this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they give him all the answers, and he looks at them and said, but who do you say I am? And that's a critical question for all of us. I think one of the most difficult questions addressed by Jesus was to God himself. When he cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So questions are critical to how we think and to what we think and to why we think. And so I want to look at the three critical questions of Jonah chapter 4. Now remember, just by way of review, we said Jonah's a story about God, that he is in control. It's also a story about ourselves, where we try to wrestle control away from God. And the four signs of revival that we looked at so far are, number one, sleeping Christians wake up. Number two, there's an intense season of God working. Number three, there's intensified season of prayer. And then four, there's praxis. And if you are here last week, praxis is just the practical outworking of a belief. James says it this way in James 1, 20, chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then he says, deceiving yourselves. And then he says it again in James 2, verse 14 and 17 and 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Faith by itself, 
if it does not have works, is dead. But someone says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So praxis is this outworking, we call it orthopraxy. There's orthodoxy, that's what we believe. Orthopraxy is how we flesh that out. And the four theological markers of revival, confession and repentance, and they go hand in hand, dealing with how God views life, faith in Christ, judgment, and then finally obedience. So let's pick the story up in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What was he displeased at? Well, Nineveh repented, God relented, and we have revival happening in a city of about 600,000 people. Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Now what we see here is prayer out of an angry heart. And prayer out of an angry heart is not a good prayer. It's a selfish prayer. And in this story, Jonah is like the prodigal son. That's where he starts. He runs, but he comes back. At the end of the story, he's like the elder son, the older brother, who's critical and selfish and angry and unhappy. So here's the setting. Jonah is sitting outside of the city. He's greatly displeased. He's angry. He's depressed. But think about what he learned in the last few months. Chapter 1, he, he learned about God's providence and patience. That you cannot run from God. You cannot find a place where he will not be with you. In chapter 2, Jonah realized that God's pardon and forgiveness is incredible. I mean, there's revival in the ship. There was revival in his own heart after he went literally to try to die again, I guess. But this fish came along, he prayed, and he's back on the mission. Chapter 3, Jonah learned about God's power. There's revival in Nineveh. I mean, the message wasn't that great. Remember, five Hebrew words? Forty days, God's going to judge you. That's it. Not the most uplifting, encouraging sermon you heard, is it? And then finally, chapter four, he learns about God's compassion. And yet, in all the midst of this activity, we see him being angry. And the object of his anger is both God and Nineveh. So here's one of the lessons we learned this morning. You can start with the right information, but arrive at the wrong place. Did you notice in those first verses, he had the right information about God. He said, this is what I said when I was still in my home country. It was accurate. It was dead spot on. He had the right information. But here he is in the wrong place. His conclusion was that God should have made the exception that he should not have been gracious and merciful to Nineveh. It's kind of like, I know God is, but, and we want to rewrite the reality. Another lesson we learn is that anger has its price. Here he is, outside of the city. Really, 
having what every preacher would dream of, an incredible revival of several hundred thousand people, and he is what? He's depressed. And just look at the distorted thinking and feeling that he's going through. He's not thinking well. And that comes to the first question God asks. Do you have any right to be angry? Verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? God is beginning to prod. This is another way of saying, Jonah, who's right? You or me? Is this your call, Jonah? Or is this my call? Very important question. Let me make three observations in the midst of all this. You know, Jonah failed to remember God's mercy on him. Another way of asking the question is, is it right for me to show mercy on you and not Nineveh? And how many times have we judged people harshly and we've forgotten how God has so mercifully and gracious treated us? Second observation, Jonah did not completely reconcile with God's will. We see him at this point abandoning the mission, even though he had no instruction to do so. He built a shelter away from Nineveh. He became a spectator. How many people spectated the Super Bowl this past week? Raise your hand. Oh, come on, admit it. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm not going to admit I saw that one, you know. How many of you sat there and said, how could he call that play at the end of the game and hand the Patriots the championship? Yeah, I see some amens. You know, we can all sit here and say that, but guess what? We're only spectators. And spectators are critics about what should have been done after we see what happened. You ever notice that? Spectators say, well, you know, didn't he know that would happen? Well, no, he didn't. And if he caught the pass got in the end zone, nobody would be saying anything. They'd be saying, what a smart coach, you know? They thought he was going to do the run, he did the pass instead. But that's what spectators do. They're critics of what should have been done after they saw what has happened. And we see Jonah doing that. How many times do we not reconcile with God's entire will and just part of it? Third observation is that Jonah did not know God as well as he thought. He knew some things, but let's be honest, we are finite. We are limited in our understanding. And while God grieves over evil, he does not take delight in punishing anyone. And while Jonah was not slow to anger, God is. And Jonah and us should ever be so thankful. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would happen or what would become of the city. (laughs) You see, Jonah, he's still hoping God changed his mind. He will just not let it go. Now, here's the second question, then we're going to read about it. Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? Now, in verse 6. Verse 5, I'm sorry. Now God, now the Lord God appointed a plant. And look at the word appointed because he appoints a plant. Later he appoints a worm. Later he appoints a scorching east wind. Do you know what that means? 
It means everything in nature obeys God. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, what about us? Nature doesn't have a choice. We do. But everything in nature obeys God. What about us? So he appoints his plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Talk about wild mood swings. I mean, one guy, the guy is depressed, he wants to die. Plant comes up, something so minuscule, and now he's happy. In fact, Jonah's happy for the first time in this story. And this question here exposes really two things. His selfishness. See, life was about him and his comfort. And two, his pettiness. And that's the progression of anger. When we allow anger to capture our minds and our hearts, it distorts our thinking. But then we become upset over things that really we should never become upset over. I mean, we just kind of go off on things that don't matter. Let's look at verse 7. By the way, you know that when we shove anger inside and we smile and we act like nothing's wrong, it leaks. And it finds expression in other ways. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so he was faint. And he asked, here he is praying again, that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Here's the distorted thinking. We're up and we're down. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for this plant? And what's he say? Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Do you see the distorted reality? Do you see what happens when we fill our lives with anger and self-pity? Whether it's our jobs, our marriages, whether it's stuff. We end up crying out, yes, I have a right to be this upset. Here's the third question. It's found in verse 10 and 11. It's what about the children? So you see the progression of questions? Do you have a right to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry about stuff that you have no control over? I appointed the plant. I appointed the worm. I appointed the wind. But Jonah, what about the kids? And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And all so much cattle. I want to show you a picture. Oh, imagine Jonah not having sympathy on a small child like that. Now, as your pastor, I get bragging rights. That's our new granddaughter born Friday evening. Okay? Her name's Emmeline. And born to our oldest daughter. And they are just celebrating this new, their third child. Uh, into their life. 
But think about this. Think about Jonah was so angry. He was so hostile. He didn't even think about the 120,000 kids. Now think about how we write, rewrite history. Israel's been in the news a lot lately. And again, there's stories about the Holocaust. Anybody ever visit the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C.? I mean, it's a, it's a sobering thing. I encourage you to do that. And we have museums now that talk about the atrocities that happen in history. And yet nowhere do we talk about the 56 million since 1973 children who have been killed in America. Now abortions are down, they say, about 1.1 million, down from a high of 1.6 in 1990. And we can call it for everything that we want to call it. Some people say it's political and you shouldn't talk about it. It's not political. It is an ethical and moral issue. You know, I said before about Jonah having selfish anger. Someone gave me this little simple test of character. Three questions. What makes you happy? What makes you angry? And what makes you want to quit? Think about those. And if we really honestly answer those questions to our core, it reveals a lot about who we are. And there should be a holy anger at the wholesale slaughter of innocent children in America. And yet it's most, for most of us, it's off our radars. In fact, it's so far off our radars that if you're one of the voices that speak out against it, you're kind of looked at in questionable light and you are accused of things that you're not guilty of. And yet people haven't thought well around this subject. When I was church planning in Canada, I taught some business ethics at a place called Georgian College and it's only a God thing that got me there in those classes because the government said we need to put ethics back in our classes. The teachers union said no. So the president of the college called me up and says, you know something about morality, don't you? I said, yeah. He says, do you want to teach the ethics module? I said, sure. And ethics is about moral boundaries. So my goal was to teach people how to process, to be consistent in the processing, to realize if there are moral boundaries and there needs to be, who gets to set them? So one of the case studies I would use, and this was great, was abortion. And we talked about pro-choice and pro-life. Now, I always said the pro-choice should be limited choice, because think about it. Who loses choice in abortion? Child? <laughs> Dad? Grandparents? And when a 12-year-old girl can, in some states in America, have an abortion without the knowledge of her parents, that's the grandparents' choice. Parents lose choice. By the way, there are 14 states. There are no consent laws of any age. There's 37 states that have consent laws. But if you go on Planned Parenthood's website, they provide ways to get around consent laws. Basically, the argument is this, that if you claim if your parents knew they would physically abuse you as a punishment, then you don't have to legally tell them. By the way, even those that are pro-choice, they have no choice in what is going to happen to that baby once it's aborted. And we're not even going to get into that this morning. It's a whole nother industry. 
I remember one of the teachers after the class I would teach this came to me and said, I want to thank you for helping me to return to a position I knew in my heart was right. But due to all the pressure from the teachers union and due to all the pressure of the culture and all the propaganda, I told everyone I was pro-choice when I wasn't. But that's the kind of pressure that exists today. So the question about what about the kids is a question for us as well. Just not Jonah. By the way, Jonah and Nahum are the only two books of the Bible that end on questions. Nahum's question was, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? In other words, okay, look at your life. And you say you get your own choices and it doesn't impact anybody. Uh, sorry, that's not true. You've got to realize that your choices do impact generation after generation after generation. I mean, that was the point of the question. But here's what we know about Jonah. And by the way, we don't know what happens to the end of the story. We don't know how long he sat there. We don't know if he returned to Israel. We just do not know what happened. We can guess. We can speculate. We can hope. But here's what we do know. Jonah could have been a blessing to many people. Instead, he chose to be the elder brother in the prodigal son story and not enjoy the feast and sit on the sidelines and say, it's not fair. Of course, that's his sense of fairness, not God's. And again, every single one of us should be thankful that God does not treat us according to our sense of fairness. Jonah's story is our story. Why? Because as Jonah's story gets to continually be rewritten after this question, so our story is still being written when we leave this place. So I want to end this message with two questions. First is, who do you believe? And two is, who do you trust? Now let me unpack that a little bit. Do you really believe that without Christ, people are lost? And if that's true, why do you wait? Say, wait for what? Well, if you're here this morning and you've not made that choice to follow Christ, why do you wait? For those that have, why do you wait telling people? Why do you not have more compassion? Oh, you can say, look, look, in our church, we have those things that we call altar calls. No, you are the altar call. The altar call takes you off the hook. That's my personal philosophy. I think if we did what we were called to do and be, altar calls wouldn't be necessary. So often they're an excuse for me not to engage. Now, don't rip out of context what I just said there and run home saying Pastor Greg doesn't believe in altar calls. I didn't say that. I did say all of us should be out there engaging in relationship people and in a compassionate way help them see Christ. So often we put in the hands of a few instead of the hands of many. So how do you show compassion for the lost? What about our cities? I mean, Lancaster is right next door. So much sin, so little witness. 
Do you engage and trust God or is life about us and our plans and our comforts and our preferences? And do we sit and brood on the side when we don't get our way and we watch what God does instead of engaging in his mission and revival? I guess another way of asking the question is do we get upset when God doesn't behave like we think he should behave? Christ's followers need not live in fear and anger. Even when things around us appear to turn against us, we have full confidence that God is in control and will have the final word. Our job is not to bring revival in the way we think revival should happen. Our job is, and we are called to love each other as God loves us. And we are called to be gracious and generous stewards of God's resources. And think about the fun we can have when God does a revival like he does with Nineveh. Or on a boat. We don't have to jump overboard into the deep. And we don't have to go build a plant on the side. So hopefully what you saw during this series is that revival starts here in our hearts. And moves out there in ways that we cannot predict, but we can expect. Amen? going to ask the group to come up. We're going to close with a song. As we do that, I'm going to close with a word of prayer. And I would be remiss and just ask everyone to kind of bow their heads, close their eyes. If you're here this morning and you have not entered into a relationship with Christ and you felt the Spirit tugging at you and would like to make that move this morning, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. We're going to put someone on you right away and make sure that's taken care of. You don't need to be afraid. This is something that's great. It's kind of like the guy catching the pass in the end zone instead of getting it picked off. <laughs> Unless you're a Patriots fan, then you like to pick off. Anyone here this morning like to accept Christ? Father God, may your spirit just take all this stuff and teach us the rest of this day and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday until we see you face to face. Um, keep doing that work that you've called us to be and to do. And we'll celebrate and give you the honor and glory because you alone are worthy. In your name we pray. Amen.